Good morning, Fairhaven. How are we all doing? It's a good morning so far, isn't it? Such a good morning. And like it looks like a snow globe out there right on time for Christmas. And then hopefully it just kind of goes away right afterwards, right? But it's, it's a great morning. I'm excited for this morning. I've been looking forward to this morning for the last handful of weeks because this morning we get to take some stories that we've been looking at over the last handful of weeks, even couple months, and bring some things together. If, if you're newer with us, we've been working through the book of Matthew for the entire last year. We started about this time a year ago, and over the entire last year, we've been studying the book of Matthew, and really in the last few weeks, in the last couple months, we've been really focused in on a specific week of Jesus' life. It's the week that will end with Jesus being crucified. And today, I want to look, I want to step back and look a little bit more at this week. And so I invite you to turn with me, if you want to follow in your Bibles, uh, we will be in Genesis chapter 22. Uh, Yes, Genesis chapter 22. For the last year, we've stood up here and said, turn with us to Matthew. And my hope in those, in these last couple months, as we've been looking at this week of Jesus' crucifixion, my hope is you've seen how the stories, they're lining, they're leading us to a space. In the last couple months, as we've been looking at this last week of Jesus leading to his crucifixion, we've been able to watch how the events that are playing out are leading Jesus to the cross. My hope is you've been able to see how the story's leading us here. So what I want to do today is I want to step back even further and take a look at how the entire story in so many ways has been leading us here. That even before Matthew starts the story of Jesus, even before the New Testament starts, so much of the entire story has been driving to this moment. And so I want to start in Genesis chapter 22. I'm not going to put Genesis 22 on the screen. I'll read it for us. But I want us to pay attention to some details as we read Genesis 22. So if I can get my Bible open. Okay, Genesis 22, it's a story about a guy by the name of Abraham, an event that happens with Abraham and his son Isaac. So we read this, Genesis 22. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the region of Moriah. What region? Go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain, on a mountain in the region of? Okay, well done, well done. Okay, on a mountain that I will show you. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and loaded his donkey. He took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac. When he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to the servants, Stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship and then we will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. As the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to, his fa- said to his father Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. 
When they reached the place God had told them about, Abraham built an altar there and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And, on, and to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Okay, Genesis 22. There's a couple details I want to look at. And this story is so loaded. There's no way we could look at everything from Genesis chapter 22. So there are some obvious questions that we have that we don't have time for today. Namely, why would God ask somebody to sacrifice their son? Fascinating story. We will get there eventually. Uh, We don't have time today. But today I want to look at an interesting detail in the story. Because did you notice uh, there's this there's this exchange that happens between Abraham and Isaac that as they're uh, on the way to the mountain in the region of yes uh, on the way to the mountain in the region of Moriah they have this exchange where like Isaac recognizes pretty quickly like we're mis- missing a key ingredient for what we're about to do right uh, the exchange I'll put it on the screen it says Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham father. Yes, my son, Abraham replied. The fire and the wood are here, Isaac said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. What was God going to provide? The lamb. God will provide the lamb. They get to the mountain. Abraham binds Isaac. He lifts the knife and we read the angel says, Abraham, Abraham, don't do it. Abraham looks up and we read this. Abraham looked up and there in a thicket he saw a what? Ram caught in the thicket. What was God going to provide? What did Abraham say God would provide? A lamb. What did God provide? A ram. Anybody notice a problem here? Right? Abraham says God will provide on this mountain. God will provide a lamb. Abraham looks up and sees a ram. And I get it. Like lamb and ram, like they rhyme. Like maybe it's not a big deal, right? But like in the Hebrew, shocking, they don't rhyme. In the Hebrew, the word for lamb is the word say. In the, in the Hebrew, the word for ram is Aiel. So they're on the way to the mountain in Moriah. Abraham says God will provide a say, a lamb. They get there. They find a ram and Aiel. Now to the rabbis, to the Jewish people, they would start asking the question, where's the lamb? Where is Abraham said that on this mountain, God would provide the lamb. Where is the lamb. So I want to play with that question a little bit today. Where is the lamb? And to to answer this question, I want to look a little bit at geography. Because remember, we have a mountain in the region of 
Moriah. Now, if you take your Bible and you do a search for the location for the word Moriah, you will find it comes up exactly two times. The first time here, when Abraham is going to Moriah, to the mountain in Moriah, to sacrifice his son, it comes up one other time in the book of Second Chronicles here. Second Chronicles 3, it says, Then Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, the mountain in Moriah. So to the people, they recognize which mountain in Moriah? The mountain in Moriah, which means Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem uh, here. If we were to go there today, it looks like this. So that golden domed building on the top right of the picture, that is the Dome of the Rock. It sits right where the temple would have stood. It sits on a temple mount. You can kind of see that the notched wall that runs around it. That is the temple mount that is placed literally kind of on top of the mountain to make it flat because tops of mountains are round, right? So it, it makes it flat. But this mountain, according to Second Chronicles, which mountain is that? That's Mount Moriah. They understood this is the very mountain that Abraham traveled to with his son Isaac about a thousand years before. The same mountain. So where Abraham and Isaac went, where God would provide a lamb, a thousand years later, on the same mountain, Solomon would build the temple. Okay, then I want to look at a statement that John the Baptist, uh, back into the story of Jesus, John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin, one of the first things the New Testament describes of Jesus or declares of Jesus as he's an adult, in the book of John, we see this. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, it's a kind of familiar religious language, but can we name how weird this would have been? Right? Like, think of it. How many of you are going to family gatherings? You're going to see cousins this week, in the next couple of weeks. Uh, how weird if you walk into a space and one of your cousins stands up and is like, behold the lamb. Right? Like, what in the world is going on? What is John pointing at? What is John trying to get us to see? How are these things connected? Well, in order to answer that, uh, we need to jump back again. Back into the story. So we had Abraham and Isaac, where Abraham is going to go to this mountain in Moriah to sacrifice his son. And we see this son, this firstborn of the covenant, is spared in the sacrifice of an animal. And the question of where is the lamb? Now, 500 years later, we have another significant character in our story. We have a guy by the name of Moses. Moses is this, this person whom God called to send to the Egyptians because during the time of Moses, the Israelite people are, are in slavery in Egypt. They've been in slavery for 430 years. Pharaoh is the guy in charge of all of Egypt. And so God calls Moses saying, go to the Pharaoh and demand that Pharaoh let the people go. Now for Pharaoh, these Israelite people, the Jewish people, this is his workforce. He doesn't want to let them go. And so uh, Moses comes, let the people go. Pharaoh doesn't agree. 
God, through Moses, will bring ten ten plagues on the Egyptians, trying to convince Pharaoh to let the Israelite people go. And time and again, Pharaoh refuses. He says no. Until we get to the last event. The last one. It's what we know as the first Passover. When God tells Moses to tell the people that each family is to select a lamb. Every family has to choose a lamb, and then every family is going to sacrifice this lamb on behalf of their family and then put the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of their home. Because that night, God is going to send what's described the the destroyer, this angel of death through the camp. And every home that has the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the angel of death will pass over. But to those homes that don't, that did not sacrifice a lamb, that did not cover their doorpost in its blood, their, their homes, their firstborn would die. So we have these parallel stories. Abraham and the, his firstborn of the covenant in Isaac being spared by the sacrifice of an animal. Moses, the entire Israelite people, their firstborn being saved by the sacrifice of of an animal. And then what we find is as we continue to read the story of Moses, an entire system gets developed. A whole sacrificial system around how can we know that we are in right standing with God. And I want to spend just a little bit of time looking at the sacrificial system about how how the Israeli people knew that they were in right standing with God through the sacrifice of an animal. Because to the, to the Israelite people, there were kind of two major sacrifices. There were daily sacrifices, and then there were annual sacrifices. So I want to start with the daily sacrifices. The daily sacrifices, they were demanded in the book of Exodus. If we put Exodus 29, a God telling the people through Moses says, These are the sacrifices you are to offer regularly on the altar. Each day... Offer two lambs that are a year old. Every single day, two lambs. One in the morning, the other in the evening. So the Jewish people wanting to like, we want to make sure we do this right. When is the morning? When is the evening? What they determined, there's a Jewish source called the Mishnah, uh, which gives us some more detail. What they determined is every day, they would sacrifice the first lamb, the the morning lamb, they would sacrifice at 9 a.m. The second lamb, they would sacrifice at 3 p.m. But they wouldn't just bring the lamb to the altar and immediately sacrifice it. What they would do is they would bring the lamb to the altar about three hours before. So for the 9 a.m. sacrifice, for the morning sacrifice, we, we tracking so far? Like, kind of buckle up, right? Like, we got some stuff we got to cover. But it, it'll make sense in a little bit, I promise. So, the 9 a.m. sacrifice, they would bring to the altar around dawn, around daybreak, right around 6 a.m. They would bring the lamb, they would tie it to the altar. For the next three hours, the lamb would sit tied to the very thing on which it will be killed. And then at 9 a.m., what would happen is the priest would take a shofar. Anybody ever see a shofar? It's like a, it's a horn off a dead animal. Like this is a ram's horn. It's hollow and it's full of like dead animal stuff. But um, 
<laughs> Every time I've ever tried to blow this thing, I feel like I need to sanitize my entire face afterwards. But the priest would take a shofar. I am the least musical person in the room, so it makes no sense that I'm the one that's going to try to play this. But every day, 9 a.m. at the sacrifice, the priest is going to take a shofar. I'm going to turn this off. I'm not going to lie, that is the best I've ever played, this crazy horn <laughs> instrument. Literally, this morning in my office, it was a lot of like, <laughs> it sounded like nothing. But every day at 9 a.m., the priest is going to blow the shofar. The knife is going to be raised, the lamb slain, and the blood of the lamb put on the altar, sprinkled on the altar as a way of reminding you that you are forgiven. Your sins have been covered you are in right standing with God. 9 a.m., first sacrifice. The second lamb will be brought out to the altar at noon. At noon, it will be tied to the altar, and it will stay there for about three hours until 3 o'clock p.m. The shofar is blown, the knife is raised, the lamb is killed, and the blood is then sprinkled on the altar every single day. 9 a.m., 3 p.m., 9 a.m., 3 p.m., every single day. That's the daily sacrifice. Then there's a yearly, an annual sacrifice. And this sacrifice is different because the daily sacrifice, that the priest is doing on behalf of all of the people. But then there was a, a yearly, an annual sacrifice that was different. It was more personal. It was where you would select your own lamb. You, on behalf of your family, this annual festival is what we know as Passover, and you, in memory of that first Passover, you would select a lamb for your own family. And then you, as the, if you're the father of the family, you would then sacrifice, you would offer this lamb as a sacrifice on behalf of your family, remembering that first Passover when God set you free by the blood of the lamb. You as the father of the family would offer it until you had a firstborn son. And when they turned 12, they would be able to offer the lamb on behalf of their family because then it's even more personal because they're remembering as the firstborn son that it was they whom God spared by the death of a lamb. And now if you're anything like me, anybody likes claim to be Dutch in the room? Right, like, if God's telling me, like, kill one of your lambs, like, I'm thinking, like, there's that quirky one back in the corner that just doesn't get it, right? Like, I'm, I'm gonna kill that one, right? Like, but God doesn't allow them to kill that one, because in that first Passover, God gave a command about what was to be, what kind of lamb they could offer. It says this. It says, the animals you choose must be year-old males without defect. It has to be flawless. The lamb that you offer as a sacrifice must be without defect. So how do you know? Well, they developed a system for that as well. That what would happen is for four days, so you would select, there was lamb selection day, you would select your lamb that you would offer on behalf of your family. That lamb would be inspected for about four days. They would check its eyes, they'd check its ears, they'd make sure this lamb is without defect. Why four days? 
Well, because the first Passover took four days. If we read it in Exodus 12 still, it says, Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. Take care of them until the fourteenth day, four days later of the month, when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. So, lamb selection, you select a lamb on behalf of your family. For four days, this lamb gets inspected because it must be faultless, and then it gets sacrificed on behalf of your family. We try again? Okay. Awesome, Jeremy. Cool. What does this have anything to do with anything, right? Let's jump into the Christmas story, into the story of Jesus. Especially, I want to start in the way Luke is going to tell the story of Jesus. In Luke 2, we read this. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel of the Lord said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Who are the first people that get the announcement that this baby is born? Shepherd. What do shepherd watch? Sheep. What do they find this baby lying in? A manger. Now, we have a way of kind of Christmasizing the manger, right? Like it doesn't strike us as odd, but what is a manger? A manger is essentially a feeding trough. A manger would have likely looked, uh, this is a stone manger you can find in Chorazin, one of the cities up by the Sea of Galilee. But a manger is a feeding trough. How would shepherd know mangers? What would eat out of a manger? Sheep. So immediately in the book of Luke, Luke is trying to connect Jesus with a, a, a group of shepherds, a group of lambs. Okay. okay, then we have the birth of Jesus. Then there's like this gap. We don't know anything about infant Jesus. We don't know anything about toddler Jesus. We don't know about Jesus' kindergarten class, right? Like, we don't know anything. And then there's a story that Luke drops that happens in Jesus' kind of early adolescent years. We read this. It says, every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. Of course they did. That's what everybody did. When he, Jesus, was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. When Jesus, how old? 12. What's he doing? He's going with his family because this year he can offer the sacrifice. Right? So Jesus, the birth, gets announced to a bunch of shepherds. Now the next story you have is Jesus going to Jerusalem because now he will make the Passover sacrifice. He will offer the lamb on behalf of his family. And then we have a gap from when Jesus is 12 in this story to when Jesus will start his public ministry at the age of 30. And then we jump back to the the words that John, if we go to... Oh, yeah, it shouldn't be Luke 2, it's John. Uh, then the next day, John saw John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's almost like the gospel authors. 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, the people who authored these stories of the life of Jesus, it's almost like they're, they're trying to shake us, saying that question, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? He's here. It's him. It's almost like they're trying to shake us and pointing at Jesus, saying the one who was to come, he is here. And then... It gets even more fascinating when we look at the story of the last week leading up to Jesus' crucifixion. Because remember when Jesus comes into the city, he comes in, it's a day that we know is like Palm Sunday or the triumphal entry. During Passover, right, they're in Jerusalem because they're celebrating Passover. Palm Sunday, when Jesus is entering into Jerusalem, would have been Lamb Selection Day. It's when you and your family, you are, you're picking out the lamb that you are going to offer on behalf of your family. And so it's almost as if when Jesus is entering Jerusalem and the people are waving palm branches and they're proclaiming, Hosanna, save us. It's, it's almost as if the people in that moment are selecting their lamb because of what happens next. Remember, if you picked out your lamb, do you just slaughter it right after you select it? No. How, what, how long do you have to wait? Four days. What do you do during those four days? You inspect it, right? What we find is Jesus enters the city on lamb selection day, and what we find in that week is for the next four days, any guesses what happens to Jesus? He's inspected. He's, he's tested by the religious leaders. He's then arrested. He's brought before Herod, like the guy in charge. Herod then will pass him off to Pilate. And what we find is for four days, Jesus is being inspected. And what is the verdict of the inspection? Uh, Let's jump into the book of Luke. A Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence, I've inspected him, and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. He's he's inspected. The religious leaders, Herod, Pilate, what's the verdict? He's faultless. We can find nothing against him. He is blameless, he's faultless, we find nothing wrong. Then what we find, the the people, the crowds, they aren't happy with the verdict. They demand something needs to happen of this guy. And so what we find is the crowds, essentially they, they, they start this process that is going to lead Jesus to the cross. And what we find is some some interesting details. Because this next day is the day of Passover. It's when the Passover lamb is going to be slain. And on Passover, on this yearly festival, you also still have the daily sacrifices, right? The 9 a.m. and the 3 p.m. Check out the way Luke starts uh, this day in Jesus' life. It says, at daybreak, daybreak, 6 a.m., what's happening at daybreak? Remember that first lamb is being led to the altar. 
right? The first lamb is being tied to the altar. At daybreak, the council of the, el- and the, of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. So this is going to start a process where in the next three hours, Jesus is going to be mocked, Jesus is going to be spit on, Jesus is going to be flogged, he's going to be whipped with these whips that are intended to like, remove chunks of flesh. Jesus is going to have a crown pressed down upon his forehead that at dawn, at daybreak, as the first lamb is being tied to the altar, Jesus endures this three hours of mockery, of essentially torture. And then Mark gives us this interesting detail about when Jesus is actually nailed to the cross. He says this, It was when? It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. What's happening at 9 a.m. in Jerusalem, especially on Passover? The shofar is being blown. The knife is being raised. The first lamb is being killed. And its blood is being spattered on the altar. And as the shofar is blowing just a couple hundred yards away, Jesus is being nailed to the cross. Now, the, the cross... Uh, The Romans designed the cross so that it would not kill you quickly. The intent is that it was painful and it was slow because they wanted you to feel it and they wanted it to be public so everybody could see you. So Jesus is nailed to the cross at 9 a.m. He he does not die at 9 a.m. But Matthew, in Matthew 27, he tells us this happens. From noon until 3 in the afternoon, darkness came over the land. So what's happening at noon? The second lamb is being led out to the altar. The second lamb is being tied to the very thing on which it will be killed. And at noon, as they're tying the second lamb to the altar, darkness descends on the world. From noon until three, as that second lamb is waiting to be, is waiting to be killed, to be slaughtered on behalf of the people, Jesus is hanging on that cross. And then what comes next? It says, about three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When he heard, when some of those uh, standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with, right, with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. According to Matthew, what time does Jesus die? 3 p.m. What's happening at 3 p.m.? The shofar is blowing. The knife is raised for a second time. The lamb is slain. And it's blood put on the altar as a reminder to the people. The entire story. There's a reason why we read Jesus as he's being crucified. Jesus says, it is finished. It's finished. The entire story, the entire sacrificial system, the thing that was designed to make you remember, to to help you see that you are in right standing with God, that your sins are forgiven, that they have been atoned for. The entire thing has been pointing to and fulfilled in Jesus. And on Passover day, 
as the shofar is blown, as the lamb is killed on the altar, the lamb of God is being killed on his altar, the Roman execution device we know as the cross. The entire story has been driving here to this moment. And we know, we're gathered here because we know this moment isn't the last moment, right? There is more to come. Jesus does not stay dead. There is more. There is a P.S. coming. But today, what I want to focus on is that those words that Jesus proclaimed when Jesus said, it is finished. Because the entire system, the entire system was about reminding you that you are in right standing with God, that your sins can and have been forgiven. But in the old system, in the sacrificial system, you had to keep doing it as a way of keeping... In Jesus, when Jesus is hanging on that cross, when the shofar blows and the Lamb of God took away the sins of the world, it means it's finished. It's finished. It is finished. And so I want to leave us today Holding on to that question, do you believe him? Do you believe him? Or are there some things that we might still be holding on to? Because the reality is in Jesus' death, in the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, your sins have been forgiven. Do you believe him? Or are there some things that we continue to hold on to? The, the, the shame the guilt, the things that you've done, that you continue to beat yourself up for, that you continue to hold on to. When Jesus, the Lamb of God, when he was crucified, your sin, whatever they might be, they are forgiven. You are forgiven. That the story of Jesus is the story of God who came here, who was born into this world for you, who would stop at nothing because of how much you mean to him. What I would love as we enter this week leading up to Christmas, that as any of those things that you find yourself holding on to, just continue to speak those words of Jesus over them. It's finished. I am forgiven. It's finished. I am forgiven. And it's my hope, it's my prayer that as we lead up to the day of Christmas, when we celebrate the birth of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, that we might believe those words, that we might believe that we were worth it enough to him to come here to give his life for us because he came not just to live, but he came to restore, to redeem, to write all things back to himself. Uh, Would you pray with me? God, we come to you this morning so incredibly grateful for the fact that you came to us in the person of Jesus, that in Jesus he gave of his life for us, that we might be we might be able to spend forever with you. So God, we pray that as we lead up to the day of Christmas, when we celebrate that, the birth of Jesus, uh, the birth of you into this world, God, we pray 
that we would believe that we have been forgiven. That Jesus, Jesus' sacrifice was enough. And that we might awaken to the love, the incredible, immense love that you have for us. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.